You are listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. If you um, have a Bible, please do turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. In the church Bibles, it's on page 116, and I'll read it to us, and then Matt will come up and share the word to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know that the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Verse 8. I am not commanding of you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, the first not only you were the first not only to give but also to have the desire to do so now finish the work so that you your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means for if the willingness is there the gift is acceptable according to what one has not according to what one does not have our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed but that there might be equality at the present time your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Our goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Thanks very much, Eric, and good afternoon, everyone. Let me add my welcome. Uh, If you are new or this is your first time, you're joining us at the very end of a series talking about money. Uh, We talked about understanding God and money. We've talked about money and anxiety, and now we're talking about money and giving. Um, and it's a, it's a fascinating topic for us to reflect on. Our culture talks about money all the time. I feel like in the church in general, we, we struggle. We feel a little bit embarrassed to talk about this, but it's good for us to talk about it and see what the Bible has to teach us on this very, very important subject. So why don't you pray with me um, as we delve into into this passage. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to hear your voice speak to us on this topic that is very relevant to us. Father, this passage will speak to us particularly as an entire community, not merely individuals. And I do ask that by the power of your spirit amongst us, as your word goes out, that you would challenge us, that you would change us, that you would unite us to be one church seeking to serve you in this city with the very best of all that we have and all that you have provided for us. Amen. 
Well, have you ever thought about it like this? Imagine that you go to a coffee shop and you're in a queue, perhaps it's on Market Street in Manchester, and uh, in the queue, you recognize some people that you know. Maybe they're from your work, maybe they're from where you study, perhaps they're even from church. And actually, they're talking quite loudly. They haven't noticed that you're there, and they, they mention your name, and your ears kind of prick up. They don't even know you're there. You're curious about what they say about you, and imagine you overhear them say of you that they are such a generous person. Such a generous person. Wouldn't your heart just melt at that? Wouldn't you kind of go, yes, that's exactly the type of description that I would love to have people talk about me. You see, we all want to be known as generous. We all want to be known that generosity is an important part of of who we are. And that's been a virtue ever since ancient times for all people. But Christianity took it to another level altogether. You see, Christianity birthed in the brothels, in the slums, in the back streets of the ancient Roman Empire. They birthed generosity 2.0. A generosity that was more than just being kind to your family members or your friends or people that you want to impress, but a generosity so radical so outgoing, so life-changing that it had the power to transform the communities, the neighbourhoods in which these Christians lived. The historian Rodney Stark puts it like this, in response to the ancient world practice of throwing unwanted babies onto the streets, onto the rubbish piles, What Christians did in the ancient world is they would go around the streets, they would go to the rubbish piles, they would collect these unwanted babies and they would bring them into their own homes and raise them as their own children, regardless of their ethnicity, their background or where they came from. Rodney Sark also talks about the times in the ancient world where plague, sickness, disease often swept into a community, a town or a city, And where the rich and the able would evacuate, Christians stayed. Or they chose to actually go to the epicentre of those places of need in order to look after the sick or to bury the dead, regardless of who they were, their ethnicity, their background. You see, that's generosity 2.0. It comes from the gospel. And even during the Industrial Revolution, let's bring it back a little bit in time, a bit forwards, the Industrial Revolution, which our city here in Manchester was absolutely key to with all of the horror, injustice and exploitation that that time in history brought about, the Christians at that time refused to allow selfishness to go unchallenged. You think of people like Lord Shaftesbury, You think of people like Dr. Bernardo, who set up support for the most vulnerable in society. Because generosity 2.0 is a Christian thing. It flows right out of the gospel. And that's not even to mention those 
during that period of history who gave up their lives in order to serve the gospel abroad. We think of people like the missionary Amy Carmichael, who some of you might have heard of, who served in Manchester just down the road from where we're sitting this afternoon to serve the people of this city before she went over to India. Generosity 2.0, it comes out of the gospel. And the legacy of Christian generosity in such radical acts of sacrifice is still something that we celebrate. If you're a Christian here today, do you not love it if someone would say to you, ah, you're such a generous person. Would that not make your heart smell? Of course it would. Yet, here's the thing. Generosity 2.0. This generosity that radically flows out of your heart is under immense threat like never before. There is a cultural movement so pervasive that it threatens to make radical generosity as much as a museum piece as the rotary dial telephone or a floppy disk. What is this cultural movement that could do such a thing? It's this. It's the well-being movement. It's the well-being movement. Now, what I hear you say, how can you be saying, Matt, that well-being is going to be in danger of killing generosity? Look, I'm not saying, I am not saying that well-being, that looking after yourself is a bad thing. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, that well-being that says to yourself or to other people that you always have to put yourself first, that there is no place for self-sacrifice, that it's all about finding comfort, it's all about finding ease, well-being that says that is a real problem. Because the well-being movement in our culture that says you should never be put out, you should never be uncomfortable, means that you can always play the well-being card for yourself and it's almost unchallengeable by anyone else. The Christian Aid Foundation published a report very recently saying that 4.9 million fewer people are giving to charity since 2019. They say that one in eight people who are already still giving are considering cutting back over the next six months. They put some of this down to the fact that we live in a time of austerity and energy crisis and cost of living problems. But they say actually the figure in the UK has been on a downward decline since 2016. So it's not all about the current situation. They even say the bizarre news in this age of need is that more people financially give to dogs than they do children in danger. Isn't that interesting? So how should we process this idea of generosity as a church, given that generosity 2.0 is a Christian idea and it's under threat? What do we do? What do we do? Well, in this passage, Paul gives us two countercultural ways for us to rewire our thinking when it comes to generosity and giving. And the first of two headings is this, my hands are open. That's the first thing that Paul wants us to think about, my hands are open. Now, let me say something controversial. Let me say something controversial. Uh, What if those white suit-wearing, private jet-flying, prosperity-preaching 
charlatans that you often find in different churches around the world, what if they were onto something? Uncomfortable with that? What if, what if those prosperity-preaching cheats, what if they recognized something hidden or unobserved about financial generosity, but they just Frankensteined it and they applied it in totally wrong and awful ways? What if it's true that there is something that the giver receives that far outweighs the benefit of the one who receives the gift. Look at me at verses 1 to 5 in the passage that Eric just read. Verses 1 to 5. Paul is talking to a church in a massive city called Corinth. And Corinth was a community as diverse as Manchester. In, 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 a, in a place called Corinth, you would have in a church there, you would have bankers sat next to refugees. And in this part of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he is encouraging them as a whole community to financially give to another church. But I want you to notice, Paul doesn't play the poverty card. He doesn't kind of put up pictures of of children with sad eyes. There's no sad music. There's no crying, vulnerable people. That's not what he does here. No, no, no. Paul almost rather whispers to the church in Corinth. He kind of says, look, you heard about the church in Macedonia, didn't you? They so overflowed with joy that even their poverty couldn't stop them from radically financially giving. Isn't that a little bit of a surprise? You see, the church in Macedonia that Paul's talking about here is the type of church which would have sent their people on conferences called Church in Hard Places. You see, the churches in Macedonia would have been the type of place where people would have been as familiar with the job centre as they would have been the church service. And yet this group of Christians, this group of all Christians, were absolutely biting Paul's hand off to open their pockets and their wallets to do a whip round to raise money for churches that they've never been to and are likely to never visit. The churches in Macedonia have got Paul by the scruff of the neck and they're pleading for the opportunity to help financially. So question number one, when we hear something like that, question number one is, are we not on the edge of our seats to find out kind of why? Why would they want to be so passionate to give when they had so little? Well, the answer is there in your passage. It's there in verse 2. Do you see it? It says they were overflowing with joy. But notice, it wasn't that they suddenly felt very joyful after giving the money, although I'm sure it did increase their joy once they had done that. We're told that actually joy welled up in their hearts first and then exploded in radical financial generosity. Question number two. How is it possible? Well, look with me at verse five. There's the answer. We're told they gave themselves first of all to the Lord. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord. What does that mean? 
It's the idea that they made a conscious decision to self-identify as those who serve God before anything else. That's what that word means. And that is absolutely countercultural, isn't it? It's, it's counterintuitive. And yet that is exactly what they did. This community in Macedonia, en masse, said that the meaning and the value of my life will not be fundamentally in the pursuit of romantic love, human companionship, the prosperity of my children, the achievement of my career prospects, the discovery of pleasure, the reduction of pain, financial security, early retirement, or a stellar reputation. They said, no, 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 what we will fundamentally be about is serving the Lord. And trusting, hear this, and trusting that he will provide from that list what will be best for me. Now, of course, the, uh, the surprise is that such a radical decision led not to more misery, but actually to joy. Almost opening your hands to all of those precious things on your bucket list, rather than making you more miserable, actually raised your heart to feel more joy. It actually eased the burden. It lowered the stress. It turned down the volume of anxiety. How is that possible, Right? Because for most of us, we specialize every day on controlling stuff as a means to making ourselves feel less worried. And yet Paul says, no, 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 open your hands. Actually, open your hands and devote yourself to the Lord. Joy is found there. But if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You see, let me be clear, this isn't let go and let God. I'm not saying don't make plans. I'm certainly not saying don't pursue provision or pursue the progress of yourself or those you love. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this. This is all about beginning every day that you have breath in your lungs. Saying to the Lord, thy will be done. Thy will be done. May this day happen according to your plan, not mine. Thy will be done. It's saying to God every day, nurturing in your heart, look, Lord, take from me the things that I would desire but would corrupt me and give me even the hard things if they would make me more like Jesus. That is a nosebleed of a prayer, right? That is a nosebleed of a prayer. And yet that's what we're talking about. Nurturing that attitude, that posture in your heart every day. For only when you cultivate that posture can you meet the disappointments in life which will come. Well, you'll meet them with sadness. That is true. But those disappointments will not crush you. And that is the place of true freedom. That is the place of diminishing fear. That is how joy will well up within you that will lead in your own life to radical generosity. That is the joy that will well up in you that will cause you to open your hands. So let me be practical with you this afternoon by saying this. If you know any joy in the gospel, 
if you claim any freedom in Christ, if you identify as having any devotion to the Lord Jesus, then you should be financially contributing to the church proportional to your circumstances. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Because you want to. Because you want to. So that's point number one. Point number one is we open our hands. Point number two is this. Our arms are wide. Our arms are wide. The second counterintuitive instruction from Paul from this passage that re-inks generosity 2.0 in the mind of believers is actually a challenge for us as a whole community. There's some application for us individually, but, but Paul's talking to a whole church. He's talking to a whole community. So look with me at what I think is the most powerful image in the whole of the passage. It's right there at the back end of the passage, verses 14 to 15. Look with me at verses 14 to 15, where Paul says, this is the goal. So we know it's important. And he says this, that there might be equality among you. There might be equality among you. And he's talking about equality amongst churches. That's what he's talking about. And then what Paul does is he quotes, he quotes a little excerpt from Exodus chapter 16, verse 18, which is a story of the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story of Exodus, well, this is almost like a trailer for next week because we're about to go back into the Exodus series. But what happens in Exodus is basically God's people, the Israelites, are slaves and God intervenes and he rescues them. He refuses to leave them behind in slavery and he rescues them in a very spectacular way and they find themselves in the wilderness outside of Egypt and they are heading to the promised land, a place that God promises will be wonderful if they will only follow him, if they'll only listen to his ways, it will be a place where they can enjoy relationship with the God who made them. So he's rescued them out of Egypt. They're in the promise, they're in the wilderness, okay? They're in the desert and they're heading to the promised land. And at one point early on, the Israelites say to God, we're going to die out here. This is the desert. There's barely any water. There's barely anything for us to eat. We're going to die. And so what God does in his generosity is he gives them this food that seems to come from the sky. It's called manna, which is basically Hebrew for what is it? And he gives them this instructions. He says, look, I'm going to provide enough food for you and your family to live. Every day, apart from the Sabbath, you're to go out and gather just enough manna for you and your family. Don't collect any more because anything you try and hoard and save, it will go nasty and maggoty. So only get what you need for that day. And that's how God will supply. And that's what Paul's referencing in this passage, that moment when God says, out of my generosity, I will provide. I will give you enough to keep you going through the wilderness so that you can get to the promised land. And one of the things that you'll see as we go through Exodus is that the Israelites, they were in, in these tribes, these 12 tribes of Israel, these kind of massive family groups were wandering through the desert together to the promised land. And God says, I want every single tribe to get there safely. And so I'm going to provide. I want the equality. I want you all to get there. 
not just one tribe or two, but all of you. And that's what Paul is talking about. You see, Paul wants us here at City Church to view ourselves not as individuals, kind of wandering through life on the trajectory to retirement or an old people's home or declining in a hospital. He says, no, 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 don't think of your life as that type of journey. Think of your life is that you are part of God's people traveling through the wilderness. That is a place that is not your final home and you are heading to the promised land. And the New Testament tells us that is the new creation, a perfect place where there's no more tears or crying or death. That's really where you're going. And Paul's point in this passage is to say, don't view yourself as an individual on that journey. View yourself as part of a tribe. You belong with a whole community of people who are believers in Jesus who are all heading in that direction. Which which makes me ask this question, you are part of a tribe, aren't you? If you're a Christian, you're, you're not just wandering through life on your own, are you? Because individuals die in the desert. Yeah, this is a side, isn't it? but I talk about it a lot. We've got our weekend away coming, 3rd to the 5th of March. I hope you've booked. The reason I mention it here is not just for a shameless plug, but the fact it's an opportunity for us as a whole tribe here at City Church to get to know each other, to get a sense of belonging, to get a sense of community, again, of who we are as a single tribe heading through the wilderness as we help each other on our way together to get to the promised land of the new creation. You are part of a tribe, aren't you? Because because Paul wants us to see ourselves as a tribe here at City Church that is designed to help other tribes, that is other churches, all get to the new creation together. The vision of City Church has never just been about, so long as we're okay in City Church, who cares what's happening out there to the other churches? No, no, Paul's point is... Our hearts should be, we really care about what's happening with the other churches, the other tribes. We want everyone to get there to the new creation together. We have to have a bigger mindset than just us. We have to have a mindset about how do we love, care for, and ensure that every church has the best opportunity to making it to the end. It is a totally different way of seeing life, isn't it? And that's why we as a church need to be a church that have our arms wide open and are radically generous to other churches beyond these walls. And so Paul, in our passage, he very briefly, he gives us two instructions to very practically help us keep our arms wide open. Uh, the first one's this, it's a sub-point, it's very practical, it's prioritise your reputation. Prioritise your reputation. Look with me at verse 7. Paul commends the church in Corinth because they have a strong reputation in faith, speaking, and knowledge. Very good. And yet Paul says all of these things, they're wonderful things, but if you're going to have a reputation for anything, you've got to make sure first it's a reputation for being radically generous. First, you've got to make sure you've got a reputation for being a community with your arms open. That's what Paul says. I want you to feel the heat of this this challenge for us as a church community. Because we have a reputation for for faith. The northern 
gospel project wants to plant 30 churches. That's ambitious. We here at City Church, we have a reputation for, for speaking. Ralph is over in America right now speaking at various churches, doing a whole variety of conferences. They invite him, not because they have to, but because he's probably one of the best Bible teachers in the country. We also have a reputation for knowledge, don't we? We've helped set up theological education at seminary level called Crossland. Some of you have been through the material. We have a reputation for knowledge as well. But Paul's challenge is, look, that's all very well. But as a community, are you known first and foremost for being generous? We've just started a process of listening groups here at City Church for for members of the church so they can share their ideas about City Church. And so I say, well, come on then, let's bring up opinions, let's hear ideas, let's even bring critique. But if the Apostle Paul was in your group, the very first question that he would be asking is, yes, that's all very good, but how are we doing at being generous? Are we a church with our arms wide open? That's his first question. I wonder if that's yours when it comes to critiquing this church. In other words, A telltale sign of a truly healthy church where the gospel is deep is revealed in how much resource a church gives away to other churches. So how are we doing here at City Church? It's a fair question, I can hear you ask. In what ways are we opening our arms to other churches beyond these walls in Manchester, the Northwest and beyond? Well, three ways. We're supporting other churches in planting other churches Uh, We are involved in coaching a whole variety of pastors representing churches right across the UK. That all happens here at City Church. And we're also involved in offering biblical counselling to different churches and different pastors belonging to those churches so that people might thrive and flourish there. Uh, It's all wonderful, isn't it? That's great news for us. But Paul's point is please don't be complacent. Because the danger is it won't always be like that in this church. Which brings us to Paul's second instruction. It's the second sub-point, and it's this. Protect your generosity. Protect your generosity. It's very practical, this. You see, when you walk around the streets of Manchester, rather major city in the UK, every church building that is now a carpet warehouse or a block of flats or a sticky-floored pub Every church building that is empty like that now used to be as vibrant, as an energetic and full of changes city church. It used to be. They're not like that anymore, but they used to be. So you're asking what went wrong? Well, Paul has this very caution to the church in Corinth, which is a warning to us here today. Look with me at verses 10 to 11. Paul almost whispers to the church in Corinth, not wanting to embarrass them, he almost whispers to them to say, look, hey guys, what's changed? Last year, you, you, you were the first to give. Why don't you finish what you started? You see, it's not to say that your financial giving always needs to be larger and larger and larger, No, 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 but we need to recognize that 
Actually, deep down, we are fragile and we are fickle creatures and that our emotions and our motivations can be influenced by how much sleep we have. If we've eaten that day, it could be influenced by the weather or what we've seen on TV. That's true of me, right? I'm sure that's true of you. Which means though my deepest affections down in the very heart of myself is to follow the Lord Jesus and therefore want my life to echo with the same generosity, actually in the reality of things, you can imagine a situation where it's mid-January, it's very cold, it's often raining, you pass a travel agent, you see the pictures and the posters of the sun, you see the beach, you see the turquoise waters, and before you know it, you've darted in and you've booked a holiday that you know you can't afford, but it felt really good in the moment to do it. You see, that is totally something that I would do. That is totally something that you would do in your own way as well. Because we are fickle creatures. We would love, wouldn't we, to live as consistently with our values as we know we ought to. But as a church, as a church community, we are no less vulnerable to that type of thing either. At City Church, there's always a threat, there's always a crisis around the corner, there's always a reason that we should pull in a little bit and not worry about what's going on out there and just look after ourselves. There's always a crisis. There's always an excuse. There's always a reason to do that and think that's a good idea. And so actually at City Church, we know that we need to protect our generosity, so we do two things. Number one, we consistently want to be preaching the gospel because remember, it's only through seeing who Jesus is and what he's done for us do our hearts well up with joy that leads us to be generous. So we want to keep doing that. That's our first protection. Our second protection, though, is we've created at City Church, we had this from the very beginning, we have an internal rule that we will always give 10% of our budget to gospel causes outside of this church. We always give 10%. We'd love that to be a higher percentage, but we're protected it at 10%. And that's why we have a missions committee who are members of the church, whose job it is, is to make sure that we make sure that money gets to those churches outside of City Church so that they might be helped to get to the promised land, to the new creation. This tribe here at City Church, this tribe's generosity has enabled us this year even to open our arms to places like Redeemer Chalton to help them grow their staff team so they might support the ministries of their church over in South Manchester. We, we've given financial um, support to Crossroads Church in Dubai to ensure that they grow and are strengthened and can expand their ministries so that they might help their people walk towards the new creation. Now, of course, our tribes, you know, our collective tribes' generosity is driven by individuals, that's you guys, who actually contribute the money so that we can actually distribute it. And so some practical advice for you guys as individuals is for you to protect your generosity. And the simple way to do that is 
why don't you set aside a regular amount of money that you would like to give to the church each month, and why don't you make that a regular direct debit or a standing order? Some of you kind of do the, the opposite. You kind of give to the church whatever you have left at the end of the month. Well, why don't you protect your generosity by deciding the amount that you will give and then build everything else in your life around that? Let me ask you this question that I find startling. Why should our Spotify subscriptions have more financial protection than our generosity to gospel ministry? You may not have Spotify, but you get the idea, right? We don't miss those payments. We protect what really matters. We're loose with what doesn't. You see, without being intentional and disciplined, our hands inevitably will close tightly, and that will drive our culture as a church to fold our arms tightly in the face of the problems out in our city, out in Manchester, the Northwest, and beyond. So let me conclude with this. Generosity 2.0 is more than just being nice. It's actually about spiritual life and death. Do you get the presence of that in the passage? You see, Paul's caution to us in verse 14 is that in this season of city church life, we have the opportunity to be generous to other churches. That's wonderful. But Paul's point is it won't necessarily always be like that. There will be times when it's Trinity Church Manchester or Redeemer Church in Chalton or the churches in Dubai or in Fairfield, Connecticut, who we currently support, who in the future may need to financially support us when we stumble. And Paul says, actually, that's okay. In fact, that's good. Because the goal isn't that individual churches get there. The goal is that we all get to the new creation together, that nobody, nobody gets left behind. I wonder if you know the story of Ernest Sykes. Ernest Sykes was, uh, I think he was a a labourer, a plumber from Manchester, signed up uh, to fight in the First World War. He won the Victoria Cross, which is the most prestigious medal you can get in the military, because his particular unit was under heavy fire, shell explosions. Many of them were injured. Many of them were killed in a surprise attack. Everyone who could fled and ran. But Ernest, old boy, he went back. He went back and grabbed those who could be dragged or walk with a limp. Then he went back again. He took some more people. He went back a third and a fourth time. And in fact, once he had brought back everyone who could be dragged or hobbled to safely, he went back with a first aid kit full of bandages to bandage the wounded, the broken, the bleeding. Why? Because in Ernest's mind, nobody gets left behind. At a greater level, Jesus Christ, His eye-watering generosity sacrificed everything because he came back for us. You see, he didn't just leave us lost and wandering in the wilderness somewhere east of Eden. He actually came back, became one of us, died on a Roman cross. 
He gave up his well-being physically so that we who trust in him could have permanent, eternal well-being. He died so that we could be given the riches of forgiveness, a perfect relationship with God, and be called the very family of God. He gave up the keys of the palace of heaven so that we might, we might always know that our creator has a place for us that can never be snatched away. You see, Jesus, Jesus' generosity that you can see there in, in verse nine, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich is the reason that we're generous here at City Church or long to be so. It brings us full circle, doesn't it? Because as we look to Jesus, it fills our heart with joy that leads to generosity, that leads our church to be able to be financially generous to other churches so that no one in Manchester, the Northwest or beyond gets left behind. Because of Jesus' generosity to us, our tribe in this church leaves no one behind. And that's what we're about. That's what we're about. So are you going to be in? If that's what we're about, are you going to be in? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You thank you so much for the generosity that you give to us. You provide the most important thing that we need, which is restored relationship with you. And as we look to Jesus' generosity to us, we pray that many in this room individually would be making a commitment in their very hearts now to open their hands, to devote themselves to you and say, actually, I want to financially partner with the gospel work that's going on. May you help us, Father, be a church that has wide open arms, generously, seeking to support churches in Manchester, the Northwest and beyond.